Well, good morning again. So this Tuesday, I was getting my vehicle to go get service at the dealership. And while I'm there in the waiting room, they had the TV on. And on the TV, it was one of those morning talk shows. And the topic that they were talking about was body image. And oh, that brought me back to my youth director days, because that was a topic that we talked about a lot, especially for the sake of our, of our young girls. Oh, you know, there, things have gotten a little bit better over the last three to five years, but our culture, you all know this, it continues to bombard us with these standards that are so unhealthy. And even though people know these are unhealthy standards, when they try to conform to the culture's standards, whether consciously or subconsciously, it leads to all kinds of things. Anxiety, depression, eating disorders, so many other problems. Well, as the women were talking, one of the things they said that stores have been doing to help their customers feel better about themselves is to change the rules. To say that a size that was once larger is now smaller. They, had, they used the size for a bigger size. They now use that number for a, a smaller size. I did some fact checking with my wife, Laura, and I said, is this really a thing? And she used to manage a couple of clothing stores. And she said, oh yeah, oh yeah, it's called vanity sizing. And it's been going on for a while. Think about that for a minute. Instead of challenging something that was unhealthy in culture, instead of challenging unhealthy cultural standards, what do people do? They change their own standards and adapt to that culture with the hope that it's gonna make them feel better. How many of you know that is not gonna help in the long run? Well, seven weeks ago, we began looking at the book of Exodus together as a church. It is this epic account of God delivering his people out of slavery and teaching them to live differently than the people around them. And there's so much in Exodus that applies to us today. Well, last week we came to the section in Exodus where God gives his people laws. And one of the things that we saw was God's laws are purposeful. God's laws are protective. And one of the things that we did was try to imagine a world where more people applied the Ten Commandments. Whether or not you can embrace the Bible at this point in your life, wouldn't you at least agree that the world would be better if people refused to do misleading or manipulative or selfish things in the name of God? And what if more people followed healthier rhythms of work and rest? What if more and more uh, people modeled what it looked like to honor your father and your mother for the generation that comes after us? What if more and more people treated all life as sacred? What if more and more people were faithful to their marriage vows? What if people didn't lie and didn't steal? These are actions that the Bible sets apart as holy. And when people fall short of those standards or rebel against them, the Bible refers to that as sin. I once heard someone say that you can choose to break God's laws, but you can't choose your consequences. And it is so hard. It is so hard for those of us who can see that God's standards are protective, that his laws are, are there to, they're, they're purposeful, all of them. It's hard for us to watch as the culture changes the standards. And what we find in this section of Exodus that we're going to look at today is a revelation from God about the effects that sin has on a relationship with him, the price that must be paid for our relationship to be restored, and the surprising twist that you'll find in no other faith 
that can trace its roots back as far as Christianity. So let's get started. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. The lawgiver is also a way maker. Today, we're going to see that the one who gave us protective and purposeful laws also provides a way home when we fall short of his standards or we lose our way. And even in those times where we knew something was wrong, but we chose to do it anyway. That same God who is perfectly just is also full of mercy and patience and grace. And he provides a way for sinful people like you and me to be reconciled to a holy God. Well, last week, we talked about how God descended on Mount Sinai and we read the 10 words as the Bible calls them or the 10 commandments as we often refer to them. We read these 10 words that God spoke to his people. So let's pick up about where we left off. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Exodus chapter 24, verse three. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's what they said. And after that, Moses wrote everything down. And then he commissioned some young men to sacrifice peace offerings of oxen. What did they sacrifice? Oxen. Remember that for later. Well, not long after the people had agreed with one voice, they're going to live by God's laws. After the oxen had been sacrificed, God called Moses to join him up on top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And on that mountain, God did something very interesting. This is worth writing down. After giving his people his law, God gave them blueprints. Blueprints. God gave Moses plans to build a portable sanctuary where God would meet with his people. And the portable sanctuary would be called the tabernacle. And the plans that God gave him were very specific. Here's an example of, of God making it clear that these are the plans you're supposed to go with. No improvisation here, um, Moses. This is Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 through 9. And let them, these are the words of the Lord, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture shall you make it. And in case Moses missed that, Look at this, it, it repeats multiple times. Exodus 25, 40, according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Exodus 26, 30, according to the plan shown you on the mountain. Exodus 27, 8, it is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. In the notes that you can download each week, one of the things we try to do is let you know the topics that are coming up. And so one of our members saw that we were going to be talking about the tabernacle this week and he sent us an email because the tabernacle is something that not only has he studied in depth, but each and every year he comes back to that and reflects on it. And one of the things that he said is, imagine how that tabernacle would have stood out against the desert backdrop with the blue and the purple and the scarlet linen, with the gold and the silver and the bronze metals. Combine that with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire above it. Combine that with the fact that the tabernacle was to be positioned right in the center of the camp. Combine that with the sounds and the smells of, of incense being offered up and sacrifices being made. The tabernacle was designed to get 
people's attention. And that was intentional because God wanted to communicate things through the tabernacle, including its design. The tabernacle was designed to reveal important truths. Here is one of them. The tabernacle's design reminded people of the garden. God's design included the use of gold and jewels, and there was symbolic representations of plants and food. It even had a lampstand representing the tree of life, and then it later housed the law, which represented the tree of knowledge. These were all things that you can find in the descriptions of the Garden of Eden in Genesis. This tabernacle was meant to be a mini portable Garden of Eden that went wherever the people went. It was in Eden that God created humans in his image and he set them apart. They were to serve as his representatives on earth and he walked with them. But instead of living by his standards, they chose instead to do what was right in their own eyes. And as a result, Adam and Eve were banished from that garden. And after their fall and after their exile, angelic beings, referred to as the cherubim, were stationed at the eastern edge of the garden. Guess what the tabernacle's designed for, called on? Guess what, they, <laughs> guess what the tabernacle's design called for on the eastern curtains? Cherubim. So the tabernacle's design reminded people of the garden and the tabernacle's design also reminded people of the gap, not just the garden, but the gap. And by the gap, we're not referring to a mall store, which may or may not engage in the practice of vanity sizing. What we're talking about when I say the gap, it's the gap that is created between sinful people and a holy God. Sin separates us from God. It separates us from one another. The tabernacle was understood to be the place where Israel's divine king would be present. His divinity represented by the color blue, his royalty by the color purple. And the closer that you got to what was called his mercy seat where his presence would dwell, the closer you got there, the more the metals would get more and more pure, more and more valuable, going from bronze to silver to gold. It was there at the holiest place on earth that the purest of the pure met with God. Exodus 25, 22. There I will meet you from above the mercy seat between two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. All right. If you have never read this section, that we're going through right now, or you haven't read it for a while, I wanna invite you to go back and do that and do it with a good study Bible. My go-to is the ESV, but there's many good study Bibles out there. Do it with a study Bible because this symbolism is so powerful. It is so astounding. And as strongly as I recommend you do that with this section of Exodus, I recommend you do the same with the book of Hebrews even more so. Why? Hebrews 8.5 says this, they, meaning all these things that we're looking at here in the book of Exodus about the tabernacle, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. The author of Hebrews, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reveals the blueprints for the tabernacle. They point to deeper realities. Let's take a look at this. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. This is just one of many places in Hebrews you can go to, and, and, and it draws these parallels between what happened in the Old Covenant and what uh, was happening in Jesus. Here we go. 
uh, verses one through five, chapter nine. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second station called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that had budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Why did the author of Hebrews feel like, hey, I want to move on from that. I don't want to spend too much time talking about those details. The author of Hebrews felt that way because the Old Testament pointed to the gospel, to the fullness of time when the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In the opening pages of Genesis, God creates this cosmic temple and then God took up personal residence in it. Well, as the Gospel of John opens, it draws from Genesis imagery. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John's Gospel goes on to connect the Genesis imagery with the Exodus imagery. Jumping to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Greek, that is literally pitched his tent among us. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. This section of Exodus that we're looking at today, it provides one of the earliest and clearest revelations of the price that must be paid for sinful people to be reconciled with a holy God. If we get all the way to the end, or go all the way to the end, to Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, we're given another revelation, a revelation of the glorious day when paradise is going to be restored And a sanctuary building won't be necessary because the new heavens and the new earth will become God's sacred temple as they were in the beginning. But none of that, none of that's going to come without a price. And we invite you to write this down too. Restoration requires sacrifice. If you've never read the Old Testament before, one of the things that's going to strike you are the sheer number of sacrifices that the Bible calls for. Does God not care about animals? Of course he does. Of course he does. Sacrifices don't point to a God who doesn't value life. Sacrifices point to the reality that the wages of sin is death. Something that I watched recently, in fact, it was interesting, um, between takes here, I was talking to Sam, he saw this too, uh, the most recent season of Alone it really spoke to a lot of these things that we're talking to. Um, in this, this uh, series, it's a reality show, these people get dropped off in these remote locations. And in this case, it was the Arctic. They dropped people off alone in the Arctic and they gave them like a tarp and a knife and a phone. And the last person to tap out saying, I can't take this anymore, won a half a million dollars. That was their reward. But one of the things that really struck me this season more than other seasons I've seen was how many of the contestants had a mix of emotions when they would trap an animal or hunt down an animal and they'd have to put it to death. There there were more tears than I've ever seen in this show as people took the life of these innocent animals that died that they may live. 
Now, sacrifices, they were the norm in the ancient world. In fact, something to be interesting to talk about sometime is why is that? Why is it across the globe, different cultures, different time periods, different continents, why independently did they all come up with this conclusion that for some reason a sacrifice was necessary to atone for sins? Why? We don't know that, but we see it. Well, while sacrifices were the norm in the ancient world, I don't know of any other faith that can trace its roots back as far as Christianity. I don't know of any other faith that has an equivalent for Jesus. And if you're taking notes, perhaps even if you haven't been so far, I invite you to write this down. The word became the sacrifice. Let's go back to Hebrews. The author, again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reveals this in chapter 10. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Again, it pointed to something deeper, a deeper reality. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That word sanctified means to be made holy. It's going from bronze to silver to pure gold. It's going from the outer courts to the holy place, to the holy of holies. Now, those of us who heard the story of Jesus first, we can easily miss the power of starting in Genesis. We can easily miss that deep sense of grief as we grieve with humanity, with what we lost during the fall, that walking with God, that being in that garden. We can easily miss seeing the gap that was created that we can see so clearly in this tabernacle and what it, the price that must be paid to get people back to that place of holiness. Well, in that show alone, one of the other things that struck me was how those tears of sorrow as they took the life of this innocent animal, how those tears of sadness and sorrow were mixed with tears of thanksgiving being so grateful for the life that came from that death. Next week, we want to invite you to come back and join us as we commemorate Holy Communion. And I love the, the name that the Catholics use for Holy Communion. They call it the Eucharist, which means what? The great thanksgiving. Our Lord and Savior, He sacrificed His life that we may live. Let's go back to Hebrews again, chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus' sacrifice was like no other. He made a way for sinful people like you and me, to draw near to that same God who was present in the Holy of Holies. The night before I saw that talk show that I mentioned earlier, the night before I watched a video featuring a pastor named Tim Keller, and he had put himself in a vulnerable situation. 
He was allowing himself to be interviewed by a guy who's very hostile to Christianity. And he was allowing that guy to interview him in a room, actually an auditorium filled with people who were hostile to Christianity. Well, the man conducting the interview, he kept pressing and pressing and pressing Keller with, to, to talk about what the Bible says about sin and its consequences. So he said, hey, are you trying to tell me that a person's sin will send them to hell? And I really appreciate how Tim Keller, with a centeredness and, and, a, and a sense of peace and even compassion, he said this, He said, the fact that you've sinned, that won't keep you from heaven. We've all sinned. Sin won't keep you from heaven. Self-righteousness will. The more I think about that response, the more I appreciate it. In our culture, it is so easy to fall into some subtle form of self-righteousness where we begin to adjust our standards to those around us. And that can take different forms, whether we surround ourselves with today's Pharisees or today's prodigals. Today's Pharisees often fail to see their own blind spots, and they think then of themselves as more righteous than they ought. And today's prodigals believe it's okay to lower the Bible's standards. But one of the defining characteristics of authentic Christianity is humility. We believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We also believe there is no sacrifice that we can bring. There is no work that we can do to fix what's broken. We believe that Jesus paid the price for our sins on his cross in an act of unparalleled love and grace. And we believe that all who receive him as both Savior and Lord are declared holy in God's sight. And it doesn't stop there. Look at this. Exodus 19.6. You shall be to me a kingdom of what? Priests and a holy nation. That's not just an Old Testament invitation. Look at this. Book of, that, that was in the book of Exodus. Look at this. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is the transformation that can happen in your life. That's the transformation that the blueprints in the tabernacle pointed to. And if you're like me, you look at these words and you say, no way. Me, a priest? After all that I've done, well, one of the reasons we invite you to read the book of Exodus and other books of the Bible from start to finish is because sometimes the timing is so important. And it's always important not to take things out of context. Let me tell you about the context of the high priest. Who was appointed as the first high priest? Aaron. When God called Moses up on the mountain, God gave Moses very specific instructions of what the high priest should wear. And one of those things was a sign for his forehead that said, holy unto the Lord. Okay, why does the timing of that matter? Here's why the timing is so significant. What was Aaron doing while God was giving those instructions to Moses? 
while Moses is up on the mountain receiving these instructions to, to, to give the high priest a sign that says, holy unto the Lord, while that was happening, Aaron, the future high priest, was making a golden calf. What were they supposed to have sacrificed early on? They sacrificed oxen. He is making an idol of something that was to be sacrificed while Moses is up there on the mountain. When a very unhappy Moses came back down from the mountain with these instructions about Aaron's new clothes, everyone knew Aaron's sin as well as their own. And imagine what Aaron read. Imagine what Aaron felt, I should say, when he read those words. You are holy unto the Lord. That's an invitation, not just for him, but for all of us. And not based on the blood of oxen, but on the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf. There's an invitation here for a fresh start today. Does that sound good to anybody else? If so, let's pray. Father, we can't begin to thank you enough for what you did on our behalf. And Lord, I want to I be the first to confess that I, I often look at passages of the Bible like this, sections of the Bible, and my eyes just gloss over because I can't see how that applies to us today. Everything you said is protective. Everything you said is purposeful. And thank you for giving us these words. And thank you even more so for fulfilling what those words pointed to. And that was the gift of your son, the sacrifice of your son. And so, Father, right now, I pray that wherever people are watching this, hearts are bowing, perhaps knees are bowing before you. And we're confessing that we have sinned and we can't free ourselves from the consequences of that. We can't make things right on our own, but you made things right. So, Father, right now, we yield our will to yours. We receive you as Savior. We look to you as Lord. And we ask, Father, that you will lead us. You will guide us that we'll do our absolute best through the power of your spirit to live by your standards and model them to the world. And Father, we thank you for that amazing grace that when we lose our way, when we fall short, and even those times where we've done something that we knew was wrong, Father, that your forgiveness is there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.